0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, AANP, I'm your host, Dr. Sophia Thomas, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and to our patients. As we age, our bodies and our minds experience changes that may frustrate and confuse us. When approaching middle age, many people may not immediately realize that these changes are actually related to menopause or patients may be hesitant to ask their healthcare providers about subjects related to aging and sexual health. What can NPs do to best broach these topics with patients? And what should every NP know about menopause and sexual health? Joining me to discuss all of this is Barbara Dean, who is widely known as Nurse Barb, an AANP fellow, women's health nurse practitioner, and popular author. Barb is a strong advocate for having those sometimes very difficult but always important conversations around intimate topics, and she's a firm believer that while aging may be inevitable, NPs are here to make sure our patients are equipped with the best information and science available related to menopause, sexual health, and much more. Welcome to NP Pulse. Dr. Sophia Thomas, it is a pleasure to be with you again. It is great to be with you, Barb. Known you for several years, and you are, I believe, truly an expert on women's health, sexuality, menopause, um, all things female. And I'm so glad you're joining us on the podcast today. You know, I've known you for Several years, but uh, I want you to introduce yourself to our listeners who may not realize who Nurse Barb is.
1: Okay, sure. Well, I'm Barb Dean. I'm a women's health nurse practitioner. I practice in the heart of Silicon Valley. I'm also known as Nurse Barb on NBC's California Live, and I wrote a book called The Hot Guide to a Cool, Sexy Menopause. And right now, menopause is absolutely having a moment everyone from Oprah and Michelle Obama are talking about it. So I thought it might be nice to talk to you about it today, Sophia.
0: Well, absolutely. You know, menopause is inevitable for half the population in this country. And there's a lot that people don't know and understand. And there are certainly so many symptoms of menopause that people may not even realize that they are having. And I think it's important that we discuss that. And also uh, the relationship menopause can have on sexuality, because People are very sexual beings and sex can continue all the way up into the later decades. So uh, these are the things I want to talk about with you. But I think first of all, let's let's just talk about menopause.
1: Absolutely. And I love what you said that there's so many symptoms that people don't associate with menopause. For instance, exhaustion and lack of motivation. And did you know that the depression rates rise after menopause? And that's because as estrogen levels drop, serotonin levels drop, and serotonin is that feel-good hormone in our brains. But there's a lot of other things like muscle and joint aches. I mean, so often we think about menopause as hot flashes and night sweats, but there's a lot more to it. And I'm delighted that we're going to talk about sexuality because a person's sexual health is an important part of their overall health.
0: It truly is. And a lot of providers don't even address it with their, with their patients. And certainly, my primary care provider, the last time I went in for a visit, didn't even bring it up. You know, I don't know if it's because he thought, well, she's seeing OBGYN, so why do I need to bring it up? But it's really important because so many physical symptoms can be symptoms of menopause even before people stop having their periods. Is that correct?
1: It's true. So there's a time in our lives called perimenopause, that's the transition before periods stop completely. And I think of it as a hormonal roller coaster. And like any transition, adolescence and puberty and teenage years, when there's a lot of hormonal changes, it's not a smooth ride. And that's the same with perimenopause. So symptoms can come and go Bleeding can be irregular. Symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. Mood changes can all start then. So, um, you know, when we think about the menopause transition, it can last for three, seven, or 10 or more years. And there's so much sleep disruption. And all of this impacts our day-to-day life and our relationships, even our ability to work.
0: Uh, I totally agree. And You know, menopause, uh, we, we usually think of it happening around, what, the age of 50?
1: Yeah, 52 is the average age in the United States. But remember, there's that transition time that can come as early as the late 30s or early 40s. And, you know, you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm not menopausal. But you might start to have some symptoms that are very disturbing. And I've had so many patients come in and say, there's something seriously wrong with me. And then as we dive a little bit deeper into symptoms, we find out it's a hormonal transition. And then there's a lot of things that people can do to improve their quality of life. But I think awareness is key.
0: I agree. And, you know, I, I'll just tell you a personal story about me. I was 45, had just got married six months before. And then all of a sudden I just didn't feel right and was having so many symptoms and I told my husband there's something wrong with me. And lo and behold, it was truly full blown menopause. And so I was a an early menopauser, if you will, and I didn't understand what was going on with me. And I'm in healthcare. But the menopause was the last thing I I was thinking, you know, because truly I was I was younger and for people even in in their fifties, these really non specific symptoms it's important for them to understand all of these different things so they can be aware that all of this is leading up to menopause, and there are things that we can do about it right
1: yeah and i I'm glad you brought it up because there's two things I want to highlight, and one is palpitations, and you know Mika Brzezinski, the news anchor, was in the e r because she was having hot flashes, and heart palpitations. She thought she was having a heart attack. This is very, very common um, because when we have a hot flash, we have this rush of those fight or flight stress hormones. And a lot of women have palpitations or they feel like there's a rushing or roaring in their ears. The other thing that happens is that all of the sleep disruption that we're not aware of, the disruption that happens when we're laying in bed, our eyes are closed, we think we're asleep, we're living in and out of deep delta wave restorative sleep multiple times at night. So you can get up after eight hours in bed and think, why am I exhausted? And why don't I have a memory? So brain fog affects about 66%. About two-thirds of women have brain fog. And so many worry that it's an onset, an early onset of dementia or Alzheimer's. So a lot of people are not putting, um, connecting the dots, and a lot of clinicians don't connect the dots, and so they may be doing expensive testing and not even considering that it could be menopausal.
0: Wasn't Oprah complaining of palpitations, and wasn't she saying people were putting her through all these expensive tests and it was just menopause?
1: Yes, yes. I have a patient who's a surgeon who came to see me because her daughter is a patient, And she came in, she had already been to see three other doctor friends of hers because of brain fog. She said to me, I can't function in the operating room. I'm not safe anymore. She was 45. She's Asian. She's tiny. And she runs a lot. Wasn't having her periods. Everybody chalked it up to the running and being thin. And guess what? She was in early menopause like you were. And once we figured that out and I started treating her, she was able to get back to the operating room in about six weeks because she was able to get the sleep, the restorative sleep that she needed. Um, But nobody connected the dots. She's a surgeon in Silicon Valley with access to great healthcare. That means that women all over the country who don't have the same kind of access are not getting the correct information. They're not getting care. And you know what, Sophia, you and I know this, but it's important for our colleagues and who's ever listening today to know that most healthcare providers only receive one hour of menopause-related education in their four years of training, one hour. So I can't even master a recipe in an hour, let alone know how to take care of somebody for 30 to 50 years of their life. So it's important that people look for a certified menopause practitioner, and you can find that through menopause.org. This is a nonprofit. It is not affiliated with any companies, um, but menopause, the Menopause Society certifies people like myself to provide this kind of specialized care to women.
0: Wow. And that's, that's so important. If you don't mind, could we use the example of Your patient, the surgeon, going through perimenopause, having the brain fog and things like that. What are some treatments that you can use? I mean, traditionally, we used to only use hormones. But now, I mean, there's so much more available. Can we talk about that?
1: Absolutely. I'm glad that you bring it up. So one of the things that I think is important is to dispel some myths about hormones. So many people think that hormones are bad for you or that they're not natural. And a lot of people associate hormones with what bodybuilders use. But we have to remember that the hormones in our body, estrogen and progesterone, we've had them in our body since we were 12, since we started going through puberty. These hormones are normal and they're natural. And when we go through menopause, they start to decline. And we have estrogen receptors in virtually every cell of our body, which means when those estrogen levels start to decline, we start to have a lot of symptoms from muscle and joint aches to frequency of urination to low libido to hot flashes and night sweats, exhaustion. So the best way to treat this for a person who can use it, who has you know no contraindications or no cautions is to replace those hormones. And these hormones do not cause breast cancer. Let me repeat that. They do not cause breast cancer. So a lot of women are like, oh, that's interesting because they have heard for years that hormones cause breast cancer. But I want to reassure you, they do not cause breast cancer if, and that's a big if, if there's any increased risk, it's the same risk as a woman who drinks one to two glasses of wine per day or for a woman who does not get at least 30 minutes of exercise per day. But let's go on to other ones. There's a lot of non-hormonal remedies that can help with symptoms. There's a new medication that's called Vioza and it works on the internal thermometer in the brain um, or the hypothalamus. And it really helps with hot flashes and night sweats. And I just wanna reassure everyone, I don't work for any of the companies that I may uh, mention here. There's also medications that are used to treat depression These are known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac and Zoloft and Effexor and Lexapro. These actually work really, really well to help with menopausal symptoms. For my breast cancer uh, survivors, we use gabapentin or the trade name is Lyrica. We use it at night because it really reduces those night sweats and helps people sleep. We know that there are over-the-counter herbs that may work for some women. And those are, those are things you can look at on the Menopause Society website, because it's a long list. But I, I just wanna say one size never fits all. Please, if you're making decisions about your quality of life, don't let fear interfere with your ability to listen to the facts and make the best decision for your own life. And I'll tell you, when we use estrogen for the appropriate woman, they find that every aspect of quality of life improves. They sleep better, they have more energy, the brain fog dis- dissipates. So don't be hesitant to consider this very important treatment option.
0: Well, I'll agree with you. There is a lot of fear in women and a fear with healthcare providers. And, you know, I've spoken to A lot of colleagues, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, who are even afraid to prescribe hormones anymore just for the fear of heart attacks and breast cancer, et cetera. And so there's a lot of fear in the healthcare community now that they may be prescribing something that could be detrimental to the patients.
1: Yeah. Well, we have good evidence. You know, I went through menopause when I was 48 and my mom had breast cancer. I was totally freaked out and I tried every non-hormonal remedy. I saw an acupuncturist, I saw an herbalist. I was miserable. So what I did was I did the research. And like you, Sophia, I'm a healthcare provider. I did the research and I was like, wait a second. The research doesn't back up all of these fears that I'm hearing. And I am now 64. I've been on estrogen now for, gosh, what is that? Um, 16 years. and. I feel fine. I get my regular mammograms. I, I have not had any complications from it. We also know that some people are not comfortable using you know full body hormones for hot flashes and night sweats. But please be aware that vaginal estrogen does not circulate through the body. And many, many women find that they have vaginal dryness, irritation, they're not able to have intercourse they're so irritated, they have lots of bladder infections. Vaginal estrogen stays in the vagina. It doesn't circulate through the body And very low doses can help improve the health of the vagina. And it's not just for women who want to have penetrative intercourse. When we don't have estrogen in our vagina, we also don't have that normal healthy biome that prevents the overgrowth of bacteria. So a lot of people find that they have a bad odor, they have more bacterial vaginitis, itching, more bladder infections, and it's easily, easily treated by using vaginal hormones. So that's something to consider, something that not a lot of people know about.
0: That's great advice. And can it also help with painful intercourse after menopause?
1: Oh boy, can it. <laughs> so um, there's good data that just after two weeks of using vaginal estrogen, that tissue becomes more elastic. It, it's able to stretch and widen. The tissue is able to produce more natural lubrication, and the and the tissue gets a little bit stronger. Um, so with any friction, if someone's um, with a partner or using a a toy, there's less likely they're less likely to have pain. And I want to tell you, I have a patient who's 67, she's a widow, and she noticed when she wiped that she had some blood um, on the toilet paper. Well, she freaked out. She went to see our primary care provider. Guess what they worked her up for, Sophia? What? Bladder cancer. Oh my goodness. nobody asked her if she was having sex. They just assumed that at 67 and a widow with gray hair, she's not having sex nobody looked at her vulva or her vagina. She called me because she's a friend. And I was like, you have a new partner. Did anybody even ask you about chlamydia? I mean, the, she was much more likely to have chlamydia than to have bladder yeah. cancer. So that, that, the point that I want to make is that so often we don't ask. And to your point, you know, people don't ask their providers. Their providers are not asking. They right? They're not asking the question. So as, a, as someone who specializes in women's health and menopause, I have extra training to ask about sexuality and to say, you know, your sexual health is an important part of your overall health. Are you having sex either with yourself, which is perfectly fine and normal, with a partner? Do you have any questions? Do you have any pain? So having that open dialogue Once you ask as a provider, people tell you and and they they want to talk about it. They want to get good information. And oftentimes as a provider, if we don't have training, we kind of are freaking out like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. But oftentimes it just takes a little bit of limited information like, oh, uh, you might want to try a different position or have you considered using a lubricant? You know what? I'll give you a hint here. You can also use coconut oil or olive oil. So you can go to your pantry without having to go to the drugstore to find a lubricant. So there's lots of things that people can do to enhance their relationships or their intimacy.
0: And that's so important to know that everybody's got olive oil these days in their pantry. Um, You don't (laughs) have to go and buy KYs and things like that. So great alternatives. And, you know, one thing that I recently read was that there's some distress going on that some people live in sexless relationships for a variety of reasons. And I read that one in eight couples has not had sex in the last 12 months. And in the United States, more than 20 million people live in sexless marriages. But some people are still very interested in sex and they need to just have those conversations with their providers. But as you said, providers don't even sometimes think to bring it up. But sexuality is an important part of being a human being. You know what?
1: I'm so glad you brought that up because so often people have shame around not having sex. Because if you look at all of those sex surveys, everybody thinks they should be having sex three times a week. But you're right. The reality is is that people are not having as much sex as what's reported from these sex surveys. And the reason is, is that people think they should be having sex three times a week, so they check the box. Mm -hmm. Even people who are in nursing homes and who can't even get out of bed say they're having sex three times a week when they're asked because they think they're supposed to and there's so much shame. So if you're not having as much sex as you want, you're not alone and you're normal. People often don't have sex with a partner because they're angry or they've been together a long time and they get into a rut People don't have sex because maybe their partner has an issue, like erectile dysfunction, or they're snoring um, so much that they're, they're so exhausted they don't want to. Many people are self-sexual, even in relationships. So they're masturbating, and that's a great way to have a sexual release. And it's perfectly normal. It's perfectly natural. If you're in a relationship and you're happy and you're not having sex, that's great. But if you're not happy and you want to have more sex, if it's distressing to you, you can talk to a healthcare provider because there are lots and lots of options to help both partners be able to have more sex, be able to have more satisfying sex. I have two videos on YouTube. One is best lubricants for women over 50. And the other one is best sex toys for women over 50. So if you go on my YouTube channel, and I don't sell anything, but if you go to Nurse Barb Dean, D-E-H-N, you can find those videos for more information. I hope that helps.
0: Yeah, I I think it's so important. I have a feeling a lot of our listeners uh, might be doing that because it is so important and we do need to have these discussions. And I know that the sexual response for women is different than it is for men, right? Many women begin from a point of sexual neutrality.
1: I'm so glad you brought it up because we think, oh my God, I should be walking around thinking about sex and wanting to have sex all the time. But for women, arousal precedes or comes before desire. Okay, what does that mean? It means that sometimes we have to watch an episode of um, our favorite show with our favorite hot character (laughs) in order for us to become aroused and then have desire. Or maybe we have to see our partner empty the dishwasher without being asked, right? Or we, we become aroused by listening to a song or, or taking a warm bath or lighting a candle. We become aroused and then we may have desire, but oftentimes desire is not like spontaneous. And sometimes as we get older and our hormone levels change, our desire levels can also change. And that's okay, but it's also something to talk about with the provider, because you there are ways to enhance desire. There are like KY, I do like KY warming, because when you put it on the vulva, it has niacin in it, and that it causes vasodilation and the blood to flow, and it really enhances sexual response and, and desire. So there's lots of little things you can do that you can get at the drugstore.
0: That's great. And so, you know, we can't talk about sexual arousal and desire without mentioning orgasm. Are there things that people can do to improve that?
1: Oh, so that's one of my favorite topics. Like, have <laughs> you had your orgasm today? And uh, so orgasm is a release. And, and first of all, a lot of people have never had one. And if you have not had one, there's a really great book called For Yourself. And there's another great book called She Comes First, and these books can help you learn how to have clitoral stimulation, which is the way that most women have orgasm. You know, so often in movies and TV, we see people having penetrative intercourse, but only about 25% of people are able to have an orgasm through penetration. It's usually direct or indirect literal stimulation. So if orgasms are not quite what they used to be, there are some over-the-counter herbal remedies that can help. One is called Zestra, and it's a gel that can be applied right to the vulva. Another is called Ristella, It's a, a pill that people can take. The KY warming can help, or any, any of the other warming gels. There's also specific sexual toys are clitoral stimulators that go over the clitoris and give 365 degrees vibration. These are all really great to enhance orgasm, especially for women over 50, because you know sometimes the nerve endings can change.
0: There are physical benefits of having an orgasm, right? Oh my gosh, I better sleep you get this
1: rush of endorphins and feel-good hormones, right? Up serotonin. It's a wonderful thing to do. It's important, right? There's there's so many benefits to sexuality, including improved blood flow to the pelvis, including you know blood flow throughout the body, and, and a, a general sense of well-being. And the more sex you have, the more sex you want to have. Also for the men out there more orgasms equals longevity so
0: that's what my husband tells me
1: <laughs> that's true right the more the more orgasms the more sex it improves um, cardiovascular health in men so i think that's something that we can use to to talk to patients about like you may be thinking that this is just something fun to do but Really, it's saving your life.
0: Well, that's a statement right there. But I guess that's from the, the vasodilation <laughs> due to the the sexual arousal, I would assume. Yeah.
1: I do want to say this, though. If you have a partner, a male partner, if you have a male partner who's having erectile dysfunction, that's typically a sign of cardiovascular disease or diabetes, And remember the penis has very, very small blood vessels. And in order to have an erection, there has to be great blood flow through those small blood vessels. And if the erections are not what they should be or not what you want them to be, it's very possible that there's some atherosclerosis or some plaque buildup, not only in the small vessels in the penis, but also in the small vessels that provide blood flow to the heart, the coronary arteries. So when men are needing some assistance with erections, it's a good idea to see a primary care provider and um, get those cardiovascular checks.
0: Exactly. And, And the key thing is on the provider side, when a man is coming basically saying, hey, I need Viagra, that should tip us as the healthcare providers into saying, oh, you know, okay, we'll give you the Viagra, but we really need to do a good coronary workup, check check your lipids, maybe you need to be on aspirin, look for diabetes and look for these other things and not just jump, jump right into treating uh, the erectile dysfunction itself. It really should key us into looking for other things.
1: You're so right. And, it, and we don't want to miss that opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Barb, I have to tell you, we've talked about so much today that's been so, so important and it really impacts the lives of everybody, you know, women, men, no matter what your sexual orientation is, no matter what your preferences are, sexuality is something that's innate in all human beings. What would you say as we start to close, maybe three takeaways from what we've discussed today?
1: You know, no matter how you identify, right? Whether you uh, identify as a man or a woman or you're um, non-binary, right? It doesn't matter. Sexuality is such an important part of our lives. I think that three takeaways are number one, make sure you get the information you need to make the best decisions for your health. And so go to trusted sources. AANP is a great source of information. Menopause.org, great source of information. Healthywomen.org, These are all organizations that have no uh, conflict of interest and they're not trying to sell you anything. Second, talk about sex with your healthcare provider. And if they're uncomfortable, find a different healthcare provider. And the third thing is if you're going through the menopause transition, do find a Menopause Society certified provider. Again, by going to menopause.org, You can go to find a provider, put in your zip code, and you'll find providers who are certified and have the knowledge to be able to advise you about what might be best in your particular circumstances.
0: Those are all great tips and I have to say from a provider standpoint, you know, I consider you a trusted resource and certainly you've spoken uh several times for the American Association of Nurse Practitioners for at our conferences and virtually through our learning center and have provided great education on sexuality and menopause um, and other women's health issues. And so I consider you a very trusted resource for us as clinicians. So I thank you for that.
1: Oh, gosh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say.
0: Well, that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast today. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time with us. Um, I know our listeners have been listening intently because you provided such great information that we don't talk about enough and that we need to as human beings, so as uh, providers. And then if you're a woman or man listening to this podcast, I think, um, you know, men learning a lot about women and their bodies and sexuality will help them understand what their female partners could be going through. And then um, women uh, learning about all their symptoms and and could this be perimenopause and providing them information to then go and uh, see their healthcare provider to talk about these symptoms. And I appreciate you sharing uh, those trusted sources like menopause.org to find um, certified menopause uh, clinicians as well.
1: Thanks so much. Um, what a pleasure it's been to talk with you. This has been great. And I really hope that it helps our colleagues and um, anybody else in the audience. You know, it's really, it's really important that we dive a little bit deeper into some of these areas where we might feel a little uncomfortable, like sexuality. It'll be, it'll be a really great thing when you're able to have these conversations with your patient.
0: Absolutely. I agree. Uh, Nurse Barb, thank you so much and look forward to seeing you soon. I can't wait. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us, Barb, and thank you to all who are listening. If you'd like to learn even more from Barb while earning continuing education credits, visit AANP's CE Center and complete Exhausted at Menopause Recognition and Treatment Options. AANP's Women's Health Community is a great place for AANP members to meet like-minded colleagues and exchange knowledge, share documents, and engage in informative discussions related to women's health. And finally, join us next year in Washington, D.C. at the 2024 AANP Health Policy Conference on January 28th through the 30th. At this impactful event, you will hear from government and industry experts, gain new advocacy skills, make congressional visits, and connect with NPs from across the country. All while earning approximately 16.5 contact hours of continuing education credit. AANP members can save on registration and take advantage of special conference housing rates at the Grand Hyatt, Washington, where the conference will be held. I look forward to seeing you in D.C. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner.